slide, our text this afternoon, this evening, is going to come from the road to Emmaus, from Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. Now, on that same day, and they're talking about the resurrection morning, the day that Jesus was resurrected, two of them, referring to the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. What kind of all the things do you think they've been discussing on the road? Lots of those things, right? Yeah. All the things. All the things. So here they are, and we don't know exactly where they're headed. We have, and just wait for it, nine contenders for the site of Emmaus. So one of those spots somewhere in there. There's different traditions, um, and they place Emmaus at various sites west of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem here on your map and then heading towards west, towards the Mediterranean Sea, and somewhere in the, between Judea and the coastal plain, we've got these little bits of like Judean hills and the Shvelah, the lowlands and the foothills, somewhere in there, they're heading that way. Um, while villages of Abu Ghosh, which has fantastic hummus, and you should go there someday and hang out and have a good time, um, are about seven miles from Jerusalem. They've traditionally been identified with the biblical site. A more likely candidate is about 19 miles away. And there's a trail there today that they've put together that you can walk on. Here's an aerial photo from 1925. Um, so it looks a bit different today, but this would be the general sort of heading out of Jerusalem, westward, getting out of town. Uh, here's what one of the trails looks like today that they've sort of built up for all the tourists to be able to go and walk and pretend that Jesus has given you all the answers while you're strolling along. Um, as they've tried to locate the place and excavate it, they found ancient Roman milestones that have been uncovered by archaeologists in various locations. And we probably have, of those nine candidates, four that scholars are really sort of looking and centered upon, and they have different reasons why they're doing that. Um, there's a Roman tombstone found near Emmaus Nicopolis, and the inscription mentions the Fifth Roman Legion, which, according to Josephus, Vespasian stationed at Emmaus. So maybe that's a clue. Um, we also have a watchtower from the Hasmonean period, from before the time of Jesus, sort of looking over that area. If you have been paying attention to land at all, why would people need watchtowers in this area? Why would they want to be focused on such an area like this? It's because people are traveling from the coastal plain north and south and also coming on up into the Judean hills. And you need to look and see if your enemies are coming. Anna talked about all of the enemies. Cindy ta and I talked about yesterday about all the enemies that are surrounding. So it doesn't really matter what time of history you're looking at. You will find a tower somewhere in that place trying to guard some road that you can get make money on, trade on, and have some ease of travel and also have some defense and protect yourself. The road, unfortunately, is in some significant disrepair today, and it's not really a, a place where you can go and hang out with as much ease, except for the place where the National Park Service has made it look super pretty for you. And that place, whether it is or is not the place, is a nice place to remember. So where is Emmaus? Well, according to the Anchor Bible Dictionary, there is no scholarly consensus, and we don't know exactly where it is. There you go. Uncertainty. Have fun with that. Okay. But for the sake of our story, let's kind of picture something that looks a little like this. It was springtime. It would be green. There would be some wildflowers possibly, some water. Um, and it tends to remain 
very lush in some of these areas as well. Even into the summer months, it'll start to get green, like the grasses will get dry, but you still have a lot of trees and lovely things. And as you're moving from Jerusalem down towards the coastal plain, you'll find those terraced hillsides that we talked about yesterday with Cindy. All right, so let's continue our story. On that same day, resurrection morning, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and then talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still looking sad. It's very sad. Just stand still looking sad. Maybe some of us are in moments of our life where there's been so much chaos that we're just going to stand still looking sad when somebody asks what's been going on. (laughs) And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? So are, are you ridiculous? How do you not know all the things that we've been suffering? And then he's like, yes, clearly, what things? I am the stranger that has no idea what's going on, so what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Also, moreover, some women in our group, astounded us. It's always going to be a group of women that caused some astounding happening. And they were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they indeed had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. So all this stuff's crazy, and also women. So all of those things, right? Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And then Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, book of Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, he entered, he interpreted to them the things about himself and all the scriptures. So from Moses to the prophets, which is also kind of a catch-all phrase for the whole of the Hebrew Bible. From Moses to the prophets, everybody's been talking about this. And so Jesus is like, let me give you the best class you'll ever have, better than any seminary ever. Let me just explain all the things that have pointed to this moment. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. Does anybody have, I immediately start to laugh because there's a place in the Gospels where Jesus is also walking. The disciples are in some distress. And it says in the Gospel of Mark, that he was just going to walk on by. Does anybody have that story in their head? Do you remember what the story is? It's the storm, right? So it cracks me up. He's like, okay, yeah, you're in chaos. You're in a storm, just like you were back on the boat. There's all those crazy waters, like waters being that sign of chaos. And Jesus is like, hey, it's bad for you. Awesome, I'm just going to keep walking. Hey, how's it going, guys? And he's going to keep walking on by. So now they're in this chaos here right? And they were going, he's going to walk ahead as if he's going to keep going on, but hospitality, they urge him strongly saying, stay with us, it's almost evening, and the day is now nearly over, right? It's not safe for you to walk around here. There's Romans here. This is not a good idea. You should stick with us. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed. By the way, he wouldn't have blessed the bread. You didn't bless inanimate objects. Um, He would have blessed 
God. And we have that ancient prayer that is still around with us today in some form. Blessed are you, Lord our God. We've now added king of the universe, but in Jesus' day, it was just blessed are you, Lord our God, um, for bringing forth bread from the earth. So you bless God for the bread. Okay. He took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Sorry, one more thing can I just tell you? He's doing something that's only taught in rabbinics. Nowhere in your Hebrew Bible does it tell you to pray or bless God before you eat. It only tells you to do it, Cindy, after you eat. In the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Like, when you have eaten and are satisfied, then make sure to stop and thank God. Like, don't get into the land and just think, I've got all this stuff for myself, and I did it all on my own, and isn't that so lovely, and I'm very satisfied now. That's, it's when you're full that you need to stop and make sure to thank God. So the fact that Jesus is blessing God before he eats, that's rabbinic tradition. So anybody who was walking around thinking, Jesus didn't do any of the things the other rabbis did. I have good news for you. He's doing it all the time. Okay, so he gave it to them, and then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. That's weird, chaotic. And then they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road and while he was opening the scriptures to us? And that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and their companions gathered together and they were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And this is, by the way, a beautiful theme that you can pull this nice thread throughout much of, the, of our Bible is that we become, we become aware of God's presence in the after. It's very often that we don't, we don't find God in the now. We have, there's something in us that doesn't awaken up to God's presence and work in us until the after. Um, Jacob is in Bethel and he has this dream and after he wakes up he's like oh I better put this stone here and we have to call this place Bethel God's house because surely God was in this place and I did not know it he he realizes God's presence in the after remember when when Moses uh, sees the bush that is burning but not consumed he goes and he steps aside like I gotta see this thing and he's standing there And it's only then when God says, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground, that he realizes that the ground is holy and that something is happening. It's in the after moment. It's after God has explained it to him. And then when Moses is on Mount Sinai, he says, please, God, please let me see you. He's like, you can't take this, but you can see my after. And he presses Moses into the side of the rock and lets God see the after of him. So it's only in the breaking of the bread. It's only later in the after that they're able to understand that they had this experience with Jesus. Here's their chaos. And they say it very clearly. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped this. Everything has changed. He's not the one to redeem Israel. We're very logical. He's been killed by the state crucified, tortured, suffered, crucified. And now we're getting these weird reports that his body's been, is gone. The women are astounding us, saying that they've had some sort of vision. Others are saying yes. Others are just saying they found an empty tomb. We don't know. And the disciples are logical, as people were 2,000 years ago and as they are today. Dead bodies that are tortured don't come back to life. They've been crucified. That's the end of that story, right? We had hoped. 
What do you think that their hope was? I think that they were hoping that Rome was going to be gone by the end of that day. That some sort of Maccabean type situation was going to happen or that Egypt would be, Pharaoh's gone, there's going to be a deliverance. Like we had been slaves before and that was our primary identity. We're kind of enslaved again. We're living in this weird sort of exile, not exile space. We're not in charge. Our high priest who bought the position has to go and check out clothes every morning and every evening, check them back into the Romans. Like we had hoped that things were going to be better and instead they're much much worse it's not linear progress at all we have bought into the myth of progress we thought these things were going to happen we're going to have this major miraculous overthrow but instead our hopes are dashed and we're left with a dead messiah Cleopas and the unnamed disciple knew the events very well they were able to completely recount what had happened to Jesus but they didn't understand them And they didn't, they listened to the women's testimony, but in disbelief. They didn't understand and they didn't believe what had been told them. And it reminds me that it is possible to recount everything about Jesus and the resurrection and to miss it entirely. Because that's what they've done. They can tell you the whole story. They can even tell you about what the women said. They can tell you that the tomb is empty and they still don't get it. And because of their dashed hopes, because of the chaos that they're living in, they've left Jerusalem. They're like, we're out of here. This place is crazy. We're walking away, even though we have some testimonies that say, stay here, stay in Jerusalem. Jesus will end up telling them in Luke, stay in Jerusalem, right? But they've walked away. We had hoped. What they've experienced is unbelievable. I can't even imagine the trauma of that, actually, by the way. Like, if we talk about real trauma. Jesus was not the first or the last Jew crucified by the Roman government or even on that day. They're saying, like, this is simply unbelievable. I know. Let's go hide in a room. No, let's get on the road and get out of town. Let's go back to fishing. I'm going back to Galilee. Lord is gone. It's all over. We had hoped. We might say we had hoped life would be different. We had hoped the marriage would last. We would hope that there would be justice. We would hope that the doctor's reports would have been different. We had hoped that a cure would be found in time. We had hoped that we wouldn't be so lonely. We had hoped. And so we find ourselves often in times of chaos and anxiety and fear and disappointment and confusion with our tendency to fight, flight, hide, We find ourselves lost. We find ourselves wandering. We freeze. We try to numb the pain. We are unmoored, unanchored, and we don't know which way to go. Both on the road and those in the upper room are in chaos. They're completely unanchored. They have no explanation for anything that's gone gone on around them. Now, 2,000 years later, we sit here and we're like, yeah, but Jesus is alive. So why isn't everything better? And that's kind of what this whole conference has been about. Jesus is alive. Why isn't everything better? Or at least better for me, because I believe in him really, really hard. And I have followed all the rules, particularly the easy ones. So why isn't it better? 
why are these times so turbulent? Why do we look out and we say, what is going on? And here in Northern California, we've had weeks of smoke-filled skies where you can't see the sun and your child asks you what that orange ball is up in the air. Or this year we had those crazy wind events where trees are still toppling and falling and people didn't have power for, for a week. And we were putting all sorts of food in our fridge here at Spark to try to save a little bit. There was, there's been a lot of chaos. I'm, I've had police in my own home hold my older daughter at gunpoint to prove she lives there because of the color of her skin. There's a lot of chaos here. But the Bible is teaching us that the chaos doesn't leave. It is bound by physical laws and spiritual laws, but it requires us to learn from it and how to pause and be silent and become aware of God's presence in the midst of it. Dr. John Levinson of Harvard University argues that God never actually vanquishes chaos entirely, but continually struggles with it, restrains and keeps it at bay to prevent the world from lapsing back into it. It's constantly in this bound border lines, stuck between. Psalm 104 kind of has this echoing. It says, the psalmist says, You made the deep cover it as a garment. The water stood above the mountains. They fled at your blast, rushed away at the sound of your thunder. Mountains rising, valleys sinking to the place you established for them. You set bounds they must not pass so that they never again cover the earth. But notice that those waters are still here. They're not gone. That someday will happen, as Anna and Cindy just taught us in the book of Revelation, much to the disappointment of all the Californians who love the sea. There will be no sea. And I'm just taking it as a symbol, because I'm pretty sure that the ocean's beautiful and we're going to have it. Like, but just that it means that the home of the chaos, of the tohu vavohu, has passed. God's battle to impose wisdom upon chaos, to hover over it, to speak into it, to call out light, is never ending, never ceasing. And here's the kicker. It's humanity's charge to follow God's lead. And this is exactly what I heard both Cindy and Anna talking about yesterday. That they were talking about, like, now we're going to go and create a place that's going to keep some of the chaos at bay. And if you're impoverished, we found a way for you to still draw close. And if you aren't part of the Israelite community, you can still join. And here's how we're going to make a little bit of the chaos go away. And we might even make the chaos go away by causing people who are just unsavable to repent. Sometimes I think that one of the reasons why we're still in chaos is because there's been no repentance. And it's very, very difficult to see chaos resolve itself when nobody has owned it. When humanity has not come forward and said, yeah, we did that. We are doing that. We are causing that chaos at the border. We are causing that pain in our criminal justice system. We are causing pain when we don't see one another as made in the human and the likeness of God and treat one another that way. The chaos is always with us. Um, I love Otis Moss III. I don't know if you are familiar with him, but he is the pastor at uh, Obama's church in Chicago. 
And he's just recently put out a book just this year called Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. Amazing. He has an entire chapter called Consecrate Our Chaos. And he says to consecrate, to consecrate is to make holy, to put it in the service of good. In consecrating chaos, you engage it, tame it, name it, take what seemed out of control and charge it with the duty you pause to consider the possibilities. You have to understand that he leans back into a massive tradition of living an existence of chaos and turbulence and seeing God's presence hover over that. It's like this nothing new for the black church in America to talk about chaos and to try to live in turbulent times. So for those of us in this room who may feel like, I can't believe this is happening to me, we should pause and stop and listen to those who have a much richer, deeper faith experience that they've lived this road, they've walked the road to Emmaus for a long time, and then they've met the risen Jesus and understood more. So part of how we consecrate our chaos is we slow down and we experience the whisper of God, the after of God. And we ask ourselves, do we see God working in the midst of the chaos? Have we enough sense to know that our soul needs to be nurtured? And can we incite some joy in the midst of the chaos? Sometimes the chaos is so overwhelming and the waves come so quick one after another that we can actually get addicted to it. We can get addicted to the adrenaline of, of the fear, of the chaos, of, of the moment, the great need. And we have to pause and stop and listen to the whisper. There's a tendency with the algorithms of our current culture to hold on to so much negativity that we don't pause to see the wonder. Sometimes you just need to go grab a psalm, open up your Bible, grab a psalm, and go read it to a tree. And you think I'm joking, and I'm not. You go sit in the presence of something that's going to be here longer than you and ask to just remember God's wisdom and God's presence. What helps you in times of chaos? What helps me in times of chaos? We're often drawn to human-centric solutions but perhaps we can turn our hearts to Jesus and his ways. And instead ask the question, Jesus, what might you have me do to bring light into this moment, to bring some hope into the midst of this chaos? And it might be that the first thing to do is to repent and then to turn and go the other way. Maybe we're not the Israelites. Maybe we're the Assyrians. And we're being invited to draw close to Jesus and his ways. Now the best thing about this whole little story of Emmaus in the book of Luke is that while everybody's in the upper room telling the disciples, this just happened to us on the road, Jesus just shows up. While they're talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and he's like, Shalom Aleichem. Peace be with you. Peace be upon you. Isn't that crazy? What? What are you doing? And if you can do that, why aren't you doing all of the other things? Shalom Aleichem. Peace be with you. Peace 
in the midst of the chaos, just like he calmed the storm, he's calming the disciples. Peace. Jesus is not the end of hard times. I wish he was, because then we could just be like, phew, I accepted Jesus, no more hard times for me, thank you very much. Everybody would be like, I'm, in, I'm doing that, that sounds great, where do I sign? He's not the end of our hard times. He is with us in the hard times. He's hovering over the chaos as we walk on the road. He asks us questions as we walk and as we wrestle and as we struggle and he teaches us and he invites us to follow, to hope, to dream, to re-examine all we've ever known. Jesus asks us to return to the tomb, the place where death and the stench of death can reek. He asks us to go there to the place of chaos and of pain and of loss and instead find the risen Christ. That is the Bible in chaos. Jesus asks us to look at the empire and declare, that's not the end of the story. To look at Rome still in power, to look at Caesar still in charge, and say, that's not the end. And you're not in charge. And Jesus is. And it might be a thousand years, but we're getting closer. We're just going to get a little bit closer every time. The last good news about the Bible and chaos is that we are not alone. Yes, Jesus is with us, but we are also here with one another and for one another. And we follow Jesus in community with one another, relying on the entire community to reflect in diverse ways the love and discipleship of Christ. It makes an enormous difference, doesn't it, when we struggle, whether we struggle alone or whether we're struggling together. To know that life is still a struggle but no longer a lonely struggle is a new experience entirely. And following Jesus makes life very different and very new because Jesus is God with us and then empowers us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be God with us, with one another. So, I say to you all, Shalom Aleichem. Peace be upon you. I wish I could order your chaos for you. I can just tell you that God is still in it, hovering over it, drawing out possibilities in life, working through it. Sometimes the chaos is there because of us, the chaos of injustice and in pain is there because of us. But if we recognize that God's presence is still with us and has not left us, even as we sin and harm and hurt and destroy, then we can start to lean in. We can start to turn, to shuv, to turn and then to go the other direction, to repent and start to walk a different way out in this world. And then when we say peace be upon you, we are talking about the shalom and the peace that Deuteronomy speaks of and that the prophets speak of, where we all get to sit on our own vine and fig tree and watch our children grow and hear the words of Isaiah, where never again will an infant live but a few days. Instead, we get to start to look towards those streets of gold where there's no more tears, no more mourning, no more death, and all is starting to set to right.